and their impact, engineering and appropriate technology. Uh, each speaker has uh, roughly 25 minutes. We, as was explained, because we need to, some people will want to change sessions and they've backed them up without any overlap. Uh, we presume that within the last five minutes, when people are in the question and answer phase, uh, assuming the speaker hasn't stopped, has uh, stopped by then, you uh, should feel free to, to move around and go on to another session if you wish to. First speaker this afternoon is uh, Chuck Vandegraaff. Uh, he tells me he had 35 years in the nuclear industry, but today is uh, an adjunct professor of Earth and Environmental Sciences at Providence College in uh, Manitoba. I'll signal you in some way. All right. Thank you, Martin. Uh, can you hear me? Not well. Not well. I'll turn it up. That's fine. Let's it All right. Well, the title sounds a bit more promising than the presentation probably, but we'll see how, how it goes. Um, my concern is, the, uh, is shown on the next slide. This is the historical U.S. retail gasoline prices, and as you can see, that they have been pretty stable uh, until about 1998. Where is this thing here? And then they will start going up again. We've had some spikes, and then recently we've had even a greater spike. And, and this is going to have a great impact on society at large. And the question is, what, do, what can we do about this? And how can we uh, to help those less fortunate than we are? Is there some energy policy we can institute or at least point the governments towards to do something about? Now, uh, you know, I feel your pain with the high gas price. I had to pay it myself. But if I look at the... Um, uh, at Gas Buddy, you see the red, the, red, the red bars are Canadian prices, so we pay even more than you do. Uh, but then we are comforted by the, by the uh, understanding that the difference is used for our healthcare system. So, you know, we gladly pay the extra dollar per gallon, whatever it turns out to be. Uh, again, the, the numbers here are for a short period of time, but you can tell again that the curves are almost uh, parallel. There's a slight uh, change in difference because the Canadian dollar has gone up in the last little while with respect to the U.S. dollar. Now, why is this? Why has the gas price gone up? Well, here are the historic crude oil prices, and the, uh, the dark blue line are the actual dollar prices, and the light, lighter color are the, the, are the prices in 2007 dollars. And again, you see that even though we had these enormous um, spike in the 1980s, this has been dwarfed by the even larger spike here. And why is that? Well, that is because the energy consumption in the world has gone up, has gone sky high from 4,000 uh, units, and I won't even go into details, to, to over 10 now, so it's over by a factor of two and a half over the last, uh, last 20 years. And why is that? Well, here's the, here's the primary energy consumption. The, uh, the blue line is U.S., and it's been going up gradually. The red line is the Canadian one, and the, uh, the grayish line is, has a dip in it. That's the former Soviet Union. The uh, yellow one is the European Union. The black line is the developing world. 
the developing world has overtaken us since about, 19, since about uh, the year 2000. And that is one reason why our oil prices are so high. Not the only reason, the speculation as well, but there is a competition. So when we are competing with, for oil, we are not only competing with Canadians and Americans, we're also competing with Europe, we are, we are competing with the former Soviet Union, and we're competing to a largely increasing degree with the developing countries, primarily India and China. So that's it. Now, oil production and consumption is interesting. Um, the total oil production is the black bar and the axis is on the right-hand side. The other ones are on the axis on the left-hand side. And you just look at the U.S. consumption, the, the, the blue line. It tracks the world consumption quite well. Of course, there's a factor of four difference, which tells me that the U.S. uses about 25% of, of the oil being produced in the world. And again, we have to compete with the rest of the world. And that is the context in which we find ourselves in society in the year 2008 and beyond. So this raises some questions. How much energy do we actually use? In what form does the energy come? And not just gasoline, but total energy. What do we do with it? And can we substitute one form of energy for another one? And if so, how do we do that? And the last question is, what can we as Christians do to minimize the impact of rising fuel prices on the poor? I'm going to answer the first four questions, and to some extent the last question. But as a homework assignment, you are to answer the last question. And maybe next year in Waco, or the year afterwards, there will be expected results. <laughs> now, my talk is primarily dealing with Canadian data, but the U.S. data are not that much different, except there's just more, more consumption. And if you look at the distribution, our primary consumption, oil is by far, is, is quite large. We have natural gas, the blue bar, coal, nuclear and hydro, and proportionally we use in Canada more hydro than the U.S. does, but if we put us on the, on, on the same scale, then the U.S. probably uses as much hydro as we do. But, but you can see that our energy mix is not that different. So what works in Canada ought to work in the U.S. So from this point on, I will talk about the Canadian data, and they're all taken from the uh, Office of Energy Efficiency of NR Canada. And uh, I will go through this question, where does the energy come from and what do we do with it? This is now secondary energy use. In other words, the energy that we use after it has been processed as electrical energy or gasoline and so forth. And you can see that about a quarter of our energy is electrical, a quarter is natural gas, uh, we have a lot of oil, automotive gasoline and so forth, but about half is electricity and industrial, and, and, and sorry, natural gas. At least now we have an idea where the stuff comes from and, and, and what form we, we use this in. Now, if we now look at who uses the energy, then you look at the different sectors. 
And we see that the residential sector uses about 17% of the energy. The uh, commercial uh, uh, industrial segment, 14%. Residential is quite obvious. Commercial residential are office buildings, universities, hospitals, and so forth. About 38% is used by industry. Another 16 and 12% by passenger and freight transportation and a little bit for the rest. Now, notice that agriculture is only about 2%. So when we talk about uh, optimizing the energy use in, in, in agriculture, the savings can't be all that great. This is where we make the savings, here. So don't pick on the farmer. It's tough enough already on the farmer. And we can say, well, you, know, you should use more um, energy-intensive um, uh, or, or efficient uh, tractors. You're only going to save 2%. There's no savings to be made there. And that, to me, was quite a revelation. And if you're a policymaker, you have to look at this kind of data. And if you want to talk to uh, your congressman and your senator and your MP, you have to do it on that basis. Now, not only is gasoline getting more expensive, but here I have plotted various uh, markets for natural gas, and you see they are also going up rapidly, not as fast as, as crude oil, but the natural gas prices are going up to the point now that people who heat their house with natural gas are looking at a in large increase in the cost of heating. So it's not just oil. It's not driving our car. It, it, it pervades the entire society. And how do we deal with that? On top of that, we have a growing population. Again, these data are from Canadian Census. Uh, we were 27 million people in 1990. Right now we're about uh, 33 million. And we have three projections, a low, medium, and high projection. And even at the low projection, we are seeing a 9% increase. Now, this 9% increase of people has to compete for the same energy. We, don't just, we just can't open it on another tap. That's all there is. And in a pessimistic case, from an energy perspective, we could see an increase of about 25%. Now, I've said nothing so far about global warming and carbon dioxide emission, because that, to me, is secondary in my presentation. But it's tough enough already to, to heat and to warm and to transport people and things, let alone trying to worry about greenhouse gases. Not that's not important, but that's a, an order of magnitude more difficult, as we heard yesterday. So, residential, interesting. Um, about that much electric, that much natural gas, that much oil, and some other odds and ends. And... Um, what do we use it for? Space heating? Um, can't even quite see that. It's not quite focused, probably. But I think it's heating and lighting. Yeah. Appliances and so forth. Now, what's important about energy in the home? Your home isn't going anywhere. Your home is stuck to the, to the, to the ground. So you don't have to worry about a mobile energy source. The house is there, 
As long as you get power to it, you're okay. Now, in addition to, it's probably. Nah, it's 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 it's. Anyway. Now, to make matters worse, this is the number of square meters per household as a function of time, and you can see that this has been increasing as well. As to, at this point, the average square footage of a, for a household in Canada is about 1,300 square feet. And we have smaller families. So per capita, we have to heat a larger space. So all these factors work against us in energy conservation. I did a quick calculation that if we were to replace just oil, just oil in heating the house, we could save or we could reduce our consumption by 2 million metric tons or about 2% of Canada's oil, oil consumption. That's 2% change which is what the agricultural industry uses pretty well by itself. Commercial institutional, same story, same idea, mostly electrical, a lot of natural gas and much less oil and, 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 and other things. And again, half is used for space heating, the rest for heating water, uh, auxiliary equipment, um, and so forth, but again, a building isn't moving. So again, in principle, you could supply the energy to a university, to a shopping mall, and to a strip mall, and to a, uh, to a university, to a hospital, by electricity. In fact, if you replaced all fossil fuels, except natural gas, with electricity, we could reduce the consumption by another 4%. And that way, we can start shifting energy from one form to another. Industrial, this is very messy. And I will not go through it in great detail. Electricity, again, supplies about a, a quarter. Natural gas, quite a bit more. And the reason I'm not going into this in great detail is, uh, is twofold. One is that I haven't got the time. And two, it, it's awfully messy. But, and the other reason, of course, is that industry is the engine that keeps us going, society going. But again, if you look at these in great detail, then you will notice that a lot of this uh, requires uh, motive power, so you have to use oil and so forth and natural gas. Just clarify, by electricity, do you mean just hydro I mean secondary energy, which is electricity supplied to you at the electrical outlet. Um, I'll talk about how it's generated a bit later on. Okay, so this could be electricity that's generated by burning coal. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I'll get to that in a minute. Transportation, now this is the, this is the one that, that, where the crunch comes, because most transportation, by definition, is mobile transportation, so you have to have a, mo a portable energy source. And again, you can see, it's mostly, it's mostly, mostly uh, 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 fuel oil, of course. However, there is some savings to be made here, because if you look at the efficiency of freight transportation, this freight transportation, transport by rail is about 14 times more efficient per ton kilometer than by truck. 
So for a gallon of gasoline, or a gallon, gallon of diesel fuel by rail, you can carry 14 times as much as by truck. Now, if we were able to shift a quarter of a truck transport by rail, we would free up almost 5% of our fossil fuel consumption. If we electrified then a quarter of our railway, we would save another half metric ton for a total of five metric ton. And to put it in perspective, in Canada, this energy could be supplied by one can-do power station of the type in Darlington, which is 878 megawatt electrical installed. So that is how we can shift energy from one place source to another. So, what do we do? Well, we can say in, in residential places, use more electricity. Smaller homes. Decentralization, centralization. Make the towns more compact and make the suburbs entities by themselves so that you, you can have smaller centers. Commercial, same thing. Increase use of electricity, smaller homes again, and maybe build smaller churches. Churches are not smaller buildings, not number of people, of course, but smaller buildings. Transportation, shift to rail transport, where you can. Electrify the railway system. If the Russians can electrify the Trans-Siberian Railway, and we should be able to electrify the Canadian and American railway system. But we need more electricity. And how do we get that? Well, we have very few options, really. Although Leonard Bond said there may be more. Hydroelectric, nuclear, wind power, and solar. And those are the major ones. There are this tidal, but I don't want to get into these things because we haven't got the time. Time is of the essence. Now, the assumptions are, in all of this, that our fossil fuels are finite. Energy prices will not decrease or not decrease substantially. Our energy consumption will stabilize because even though our populations will increase, we will have more increased efficiency and that will offset that. But I do not expect our energy consumption in total for the countries will decrease substantially. So that's what we're faced with. And finally, the electorate is not altruistic. You cannot run for office to promise to raise the price of oil, to raise the price of gas, to raise the price of electricity. It doesn't work. It's been tried. The Canadian government fell because, or was not re-elected because of it, and there was a marginal increase in cost. It simply cannot be done. So when we try to change things, we have to keep that in mind. So going to electricity generation then, right now in Canada, um, we, uh, to answer your question, your comment here, it's hydro is the blue, uh, coal is the following, is the following one is coal, here is, uh, a uh, here is uh, nuclear and there's natural gas, and that's what's being used. 
and this is what comes out, and of course, the hydro is 100% efficient, that's, that's why we have this more than 50%, so our, in Canada, more than half our energy comes from hydro. And that's what we're faced with. Thank you. Now, if all current electricity generated by oil would be replaced by nuclear or renewable fuels, we would reduce Canada's oil consumption by 4%. It's not a lot of much, but this is only electricity, the current consumption. Now, if you want to go to more electricity, of course, we'd have to use more, more of this. The challenges we have, though, is a time frame. Do we have enough time to make this change before the wheels fall off of, of, of society? And especially people at the economic margins. Financial costs of the infrastructure. How much does it cost to build alternate energy generating systems? It's not cheap. We're trying to build a dam at Wisconsin in northern Manitoba at 200 megawatts for $1.6 billion at $8 per kilowatt, $8 per watt. Uh, we, are, we are trying to remodel, a, to refurbish the station, uh, 800 million for 120 megawatt. Nuclear power station, about $1 to $3 per watt. Wind generators, $2 per watt. And those numbers are fuzzy because nobody wants to say how much these things cost to build anyway. Uh, Sarnia has a solar farm in Ontario, just, just across, from, just north of, northwest of Detroit. And it's 40 megawatt, it costs $300 million, and it takes up 365 hectare. So again, this is a problem. And what we, come, what we see, are seeing now is that when energy becomes more expensive, building these things becomes more expensive. So we can get ourselves into a financial trough from which we may not escape. And of course, we have energy costs. How much does it cost energy-wise to build a windmill? When is, what's the payback energy-wise? And we have the social environmental cost, not in my backyard, as we heard yesterday from somebody at Calvin College. Impact on the environment, impact on Aboriginal societies, do the native, native people want to dam in the area, and so forth. So I, I tried one back at the envelope calculation. I said, suppose we take a, a reference community of 10,000 residents, 25,000 people, two and a half people per household, and we would replace the oil by wind turbines. We would need one half, we would need about two wind turbines at 100% efficiency and about five to seven at, at, a lower, at a lower availability. If we were to use all fossil fuel, replace that by wind turbines, this town of 25,000 people, about the town of the size of Newburgh, I would think, we would need about 40 to 60 turbines. But we would still have to have access to the grid because these turbines don't always work unless we find a way to store the energy, which may, which may take some effort as well. This is not a pan so, uh, wind power. I'm just saying that this is the magnitude of the problem. That leaves us with nuclear power. And here again, the picture is dismal from a Canadian and American perspective, because you look at the under construction column. How many are being constructed in the United States today? Zero. There are 15,000 megawatt planned, but planning and building are two different things. In Canada, we have $1,500 under construction, which really means we're fixing up ones that were shut down a long time ago. Where are, where are people making use nuclear power? 
Not the UK or France. France a little bit. Korea, 3,000 under construction. China, 7,000 under construction and 26 gigawatt planned. That's looking into the future. Do we have enough uranium? Yes, we have enough uranium. I showed this slide a couple of years ago in, uh, in Grand Rapids, I believe. You know, we have a lot of uranium, and Australia, Canada, U.S. are the, the top three of the, of three of the top four, and they have the largest amount of safe, uh, secure supply. And as the price of uranium increases, our our available resources or accessible resources, economically available resources, increases as well. We can increase our, oops, we can increase our, improve our reactor design, and we can go to breeder reactors. So the, it's a blue sky uh, opportunity for, for nuclear power. We can extend our fuel supply by going to fast breeder reactors. We can go to thermal breeder reactors. And here are some examples. So my concluding comments is that societies that are based on the current energy mix cannot be sustained. It's as simple as that. We cannot legislate a drastic increase or decrease in energy consumption. You cannot legislate. You can't say you can only drive so many kilometers, so many miles. We should conserve our fossil fuels for chemical feedstock and its mobile power mobile power mobile equipment. We can achieve some savings by going more and more to rail transport. And we should use more electricity at residential, industrial, and commercial institutions. And we should come up with a mix of energy from nuclear, solar, and wind where applicable. The time to take action was 10 years ago. Thank you. Ah, I think we have. Uh, okay, there we go. Ah.